My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. I sit in front of the computer for long periods of time each day, so at times I feel my shoulders scrunch over as I'm working. A while back, someone I know noticed my posture and gave me suggestions to how to fix the problem. First, I had to stand up straight and roll my shoulders back about three times in a comfortable position to see how bad my normal shoulder posture was. Second, I relax my whole body as best as I can and place my arms to the side of my thighs. He told me that I will know how bad my shoulders are when I look at the position of my hands. If the top of your hands face forward after you place your arms to the side and relax your shoulders, that means that your shoulders are scrunched forward and you need to fix your posture. So, as I went to test my posture, I was surprised at how much the top of my hands were facing forward. I don't know if it is mainly due to the fact that I work all day in front of the computer or because of my horrible posture while working. But with this method, I was able to see that my shoulders were out of alignment. The person helping me was able to teach me the exercises to straighten my shoulders. I was amazed by what he told me, so I decided to try the exercises, and after doing them for only about one to two minutes, I noticed that my shoulders were straighter than before. When I tried the exercises again after about two hours, I noticed that my shoulders had gone back to their original scrunched forward position. That's when I asked him why my shoulders did that, and he told me that you have to do the exercises daily to fix the problem, and that I shouldn't try to fix the problem in one try because it took a long time of bad posture to cause the problem. I agreed with what he told me. My shoulders did become a little better after one to two minutes of exercise, but because this problem happened over a long period of time and my habit of sitting with bad posture, my shoulders went right back to their original poor position. We will continue this conversation after the first song. Jesus, friend of sinners, we have strayed so far away. We cut down people in your name, but the sword was never ours to swing. Jesus, friend of sinners, the truth's become so hard to see. The world is on their way to you, but they're tripping over me. Always looking around but never looking up I'm so double-minded A plank-eyed saint with dirty hands And a heart divided Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners Open our eyes to the world At the end of our pointing fingers Let our hearts be Led by mercy, help us reach with open hearts and open doors. <laughs> 
Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Jesus, friend of sinners, the one who's riding in the sea. to remember we are all the least of these let the memory of your mercy bring your people to their knees nobody knows what we're for only what we're against when we judge the wounded what if we put down our signs crossed over the lines and love like you did oh Jesus of sinners Open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers Let our hearts be led by mercy Help us reach with open hearts and open doors Oh Jesus, friend of sinners Break our hearts for what breaks yours You love every lost cause You reach for the outcast oh, For the leper and the lame With every reason that you came Lord, I was that lost cause And I was the outcast But you died for sinners just like me A grateful leper at your feet
I started to do the stretching exercises daily, and I noticed my shoulders straighten after every session. But a couple of hours after the exercise, my shoulders went right back to their original scrunched forward position. I think it was hard for my body to get used to the change because I've been sitting in front of the computer with horrible posture for a very long time. It's like how a rubber band goes back to its original position when it's let go. We call that elasticity. The rubber band is able to show its elasticity after it is stretched by an outside force. When you look at the elasticity of a rubber band, it has similarities to our sinful lives. We were born into sin, and we all live a sinful life, and that is why Jesus Christ. Washed away our sins with His blood and made us righteous. Even after we were made righteous, after being a sinner, because of the quote elasticity of our sinful life, we tend to go back to our normal lives. This is why we have this battle with sin in our lives. Do all of you have this battle in your lives? It is the battle between the mind that wants to live the life of following the words of God. And the lust for the flesh and worldly things. I have heard this quote several times. Because our sinful life is embedded in our flesh, we are not free from our sins and will continue to sin until we let go of our flesh. What this quote is saying is correct. More so, if you lose your battle with sin. But is that what the Bible tells us? It is more important to know what the Bible tells us rather than what we think is correct. Jesus told the man that he treated who suffered from an illness for thirty-eight years, and the woman who was accused of adultery the same thing. He told them never to sin again. If we are not able to be free from sin until we let go of our flesh, then Jesus is asking the impossible from us. But Jesus would not ask any of us to do the impossible. Romans chapter six tells us how we are freed from our sins. Romans chapter six verses seventeen and eighteen says, "But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you are committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness." The Bible teaches us. That we are able to be freed from our sins, and that we are freed from our sins through Jesus Christ. Here am I, a sinner free, pardoned by Your Majesty. Your love has led me into liberty. Holy King upon the throne, You've made this heart Your very own. I feel like the leper who's been healed. I have known a love so sweet, a saving love that brings relief, a healing love that makes the blind eyes see. King of love and Prince of peace, Your shepherd's love is tending me, a love that satisfies my deepest needs. Lost and dirty, yet you found me. Stained by sin, but you have cleansed me. Can it be I'm precious in your sight? What is man and who am I 
A child of God, my father's pride What a joy to be the Lord's delight Here am I, a sinner free Pardoned by your majesty Your love has led me into liberty Holy King upon the throne You've made this heart your very own I feel like the leper who's been healed Lost and dirty yet you found me Stained by sin but you have cleansed me Can it be I'm precious in your sight? What is man and who am I? A child of God, my father's pride What a joy to be the Lord's delight Lost and dirty yet you found me Stained by sin but you have cleansed me Can it be I'm precious in your sight? So precious What is man and who am I? Blind I see King of love and prince of peace Your shepherd's love is tending me A love that satisfies my deepest needs Lost and dirty yet you found me Stained by sin but you have cleansed me Can it be I'm precious in your sight? What is man and who am I? A child of God my father's pride what a joy to be the Lord's delight
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is King Messiah, Part 1, based on John chapter 19, verses 11 through 42. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and the Lord has been brought before Pilate. Pilate has said, don't you know that I have the authority to deliver you to be crucified or to set you free? And Jesus responds in verse 11, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. And so Jesus is letting them know, I am not your victim. Jesus is a sacrifice. He goes on and he, it says in verse 14, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, Pilate says, behold your king. They therefore cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no what? King, but Caesar. Now, if you would want to underline how many times it says king, 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 and then you go back up in the verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 3, hail king of the Jews. Pilate asks him, are you a king? In chapter 18, this word king is used over and over and over again. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. Verse 16. And so he then delivered him up to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Now, it is interesting that this place where Jesus was crucified, the place of the skull or skull mountain. Now back to the scripture, verse 18. There they crucified him and uh, with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was a seamless one, woven in one piece. Whenever I think of that, I always think of the perfect righteousness of the Lord that covers us. I think of this perfect righteousness, that robe of righteousness that covers me. I think of how the Lord covers us. We who have driven the nails in His hand. We who have uh, been responsible for 
the death of Christ. He, he lifts us up and he covers us with his own righteousness. And you know, you have to understand that Jesus wasn't like upset that he had to take our sins upon him. He came because he loves us so much. He came willingly and he offers his life for us. And it, it just goes beyond my imagination that the one who created this world would sacrifice himself for the world. It's just too good to be true. And yet we are, we are partakers of that, aren't we, saints? We are saved by Jesus' blood. And so this here at the cross is offered this seamless tunic of righteousness at the cross is where we see this. And these soldiers don't even know what they have in their hands, do they? And they said to one another, well, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And uh, John comments that the scripture might be fulfilled, and he quotes the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Everything that's happening to Jesus is fulfilling scripture. His arrest, his betrayal by a friend, the 30 pieces of silver, all of this fulfilling prophecy. It's just like you're passing the the prophecy markers faster and faster and faster and faster until it's almost a blur. So many prophecies are being fulfilled at one time. Therefore, the soldiers, verse 25, did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Who's the disciple he loved? That's John. That's always code for John in the Gospel of John. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Woman is a term of endearment here. It's not a derogatory term. I wouldn't dare say that to my wife. But it meant dear lady. Dear lady. Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Last night, my family watched The Passion of the Christ. And it was the first time that my kids have seen it. Uh, We were just wanting to wait till they were a little bit older before they saw it because it's so impacting and it's so uh, real. And uh, we watched it last night. And again, the profound uh, love of Christ and His driving passion to go to the cross for us was profound but my son was saying you know dad one of the things that really touched me was how he was and all of the kids that watched it were saying how he cared for his mother how he he didn't forget that he had a family in the midst of dying for the whole world he still remembers the one doesn't he and so in the midst of his own pain and suffering he remembers us and After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Now, he draws the attention to Psalm 22, verse 12. This is a psalm that describes crucifixion nearly half a millennium before uh, it was invented. And hundreds of years before Christ came to the earth. Here, the first line of that psalm is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the other Gospels, Jesus cries that out. 
And it wasn't just because he was separated from God while he bore the sins of the world, but it was also kind of a one-line code that everybody standing around would immediately know. Like if I, if I said, blessed assurance, you would immediately begin to think of a hymn. Blessed assurance. If I said, amazing grace, you would begin to think of something you've memorized. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And so the first line of a psalm, if I said, for God so loved, you would immediately go through John 3.16 without even, well, this is the way the Old Testament was to the Jews. And so when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They knew what that meant. And they began to, to, to be able to check off, oh, his he's hands and feet are pierced. Oh, his enemies are... And it describes crucifixion precisely, that psalm does. And part of that psalm says, I thirst. And so Jesus, again, not a victim, but really he's victor. He is fulfilling the scriptures one by one by one. So they heard him cry that out. And so a jar full of sour wine was standing there, something like salad vinegar. So they put it on a sponge, the sour wine, upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. Uh, Interesting, the Psalm 69 verse 21 predicts this. And when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is what? Finished. He tasted the sour cup, so to speak. His was the bitter cup. He had prayed, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. This is the cup of the wine of the wrath of God that's poured out without any dilution upon those who are guilty of breaking God's law. Jesus receives that. Here it's in picture. He tastes it. And with that taste, he tasted death for all of us. And he cried out, Incredibly. In Greek it means paid in full. And he says, bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, God forbid that the Sabbath be broken. For that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. See, with the nails in their hands and feet and their arms dislocated, the only way that they could breathe was to push up on the nail that's piercing their feet and push up and gasp for a breath and then sag back down and hang on the the nails that were most likely through the wrist, right through the nerve that goes to the median nerve that goes right through the wrist, causing excruciating, just unbelievable pain all the time and Of course, even more pain when you're pushing up on that nail. And so if their legs were broken, they couldn't push up and they would die of of asphyxiation within minutes. And so they went to break all the two thieves' legs. And the soldiers, therefore, when they came and they broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Of course, the scripture says in verse 36, these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Verse 34, it says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood 
and water. And he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. John says, I witness this with my own eyes. I saw it. This is true. The healing stream, the living water, the blood and the cleansing water, they came from his side. And verse 37, again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Now, repeatedly in this passage, we're reading how he is called the king, the king, the king. I think it's very significant that the Holy Spirit has emphasized that. I've never seen it before until this last uh, time when I've been studying the scripture and I've been thinking about it for about half a year. The king, the king, the king, the king of the Jews. When Jesus came to the earth, he fulfilled the prophecies in his birth, of course, who his parents would be, the city of Bethlehem, born, you know, we know that there are many prophecies the Lord fulfilled. And then that Daniel the prophet had predicted that the Messiah would be presented to Israel on an exact day. And and Daniel gave a precise date. And he said, 173,880 days after a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince will come. And so he says there are going to be 173,880 days And then Messiah the Prince is going to be revealed to Israel. Messiah the Prince, the King. And Zechariah the prophet said he'll come lowly, mounted on a donkey. And that's because kings who came peacefully to a city rode on donkeys. Kings who came to war rode on white horses. And so the first time the Lord came to Jerusalem, he came peacefully. On the very day that Daniel the prophet predicted the Messiah would come to Israel, on that very date, and we know that as Palm Sunday. And that was also the very time when all the sheep would be driven into the city of Jerusalem because they had to be in Jerusalem for a set amount of time, for several days, until they were to be offered as Passover lambs. And so there were literally thousands, tens of thousands of lambs being driven into the city. And they were all going into this through the sheep gates. And this is the way Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And that's why they had to throw down things before him to clear the way, to clean the way, because all these sheep are going too. And so he comes in, and they're hailing, hailing him as the king of David, the son of David. He's the king, right? And then he comes into Jerusalem. He's in and out of Jerusalem during this time. He's coming to be the king. Now, there's more to this. This is so cool. When I see in verse uh, 19... And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross and is written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. I have to take pause here. I've got to share with you something that I found. It's so cool. And I believe it's one of my uh, Jewish friends shared this with me over a year ago. And I I found this stuff written on a napkin that he shared with me. And then I thought, man, this is phenomenal. I've been studying it. I just want to share it with you. Share with you a little bit of what I found. But... uh, Pilate, Pilate didn't like the Jews. 
And the Jews didn't like Pilate. And they had this little battle going on. And as you read the accounts here of, of the passion of Christ and, and the trial of Jesus, you see this, this positioning going on and, and, and trying to, to use each other and throw jabs at each other. And one of the jabs, uh, big-time jabs, that Pilate is, is sending is that uh, I'm going to write on this inscription in every language that is a major language of the empire that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He wrote it in Latin, he wrote it in Hebrew, he wrote it in uh, Greek as well. Now, this is what I want to share with you. They didn't know what they were doing. They're just kind of spiting each other, aren't they? But God's spirit is guiding this whole thing. This is phenomenal. There are three Rosh Hashanahs in the Jewish calendar. The first is Rosh Hashanah, that's the Feast of Trumpets in the fall, near the, the, uh, which is the head of the year, the Jewish New Year. We know it as the Feast of Trumpets. And actually, prophetically, it it's signifies the rapture of the church. That's one of the Rosh Hashanahs, the heads of the year. And then there's another Rosh Hashanah, and, and that is the Rosh Hashanah for trees. In the law, it says that there are to be trees planted in Israel. And so there's a celebration of trees. In fact, the, Moses said, when you go into the land of Israel, you're not to eat the, the fruit of any tree for three years. And then you're to plant trees every year. And so there was a Rosh Hashanah for trees. And then thirdly, it didn't happen often, but there was a Rosh Hashanah ahead of the year for kings. And when we look carefully at the scriptures, and in 1 Kings 6, 1, repeated in 2 Chronicles 3, 2 as well, we find out that the day of the coronation of the kings of Israel was this Rosh Hashanah. There was a time when kings would always be crowned in Israel. Always on this date. Solomon began his reign a month after he had been crowned. All right? And so we know the month he was crowned. You go back to the month. Uh, we know that the second month of his reign. You go back the month previous. And it is Nisan. And it happens to be the day of Passover. The day before the Passover when Jesus is crucified. Just on that eve, this was actually the day when the kings of Israel were to be crowned. You see, you can't be a king unless there's the official crowning, right? You have to have a coronation for a king. Did the Roman soldiers know what they were doing when they wove the crown of thorns? They had no idea. Just like the people of Israel had no idea that their king was coming in to Jerusalem on the very day Daniel the prophet predicted. They didn't understand when they put royal robes on Jesus after he was beaten, crowned him with the crown of thorns, that they were doing it on the very day when the law prescribed the kings of Israel were to be crowned.
became sin Who knew no sin That we might become His righteousness He humbled Himself And carried the cross Love so
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999, and email address is gmail.com. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. In our last broadcast, we studied Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount that said, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Jesus is not telling us not to judge between good and evil, but is telling us not to judge and condemn our brothers. Jesus calls us hypocrites if we were not able to realize our own big faults but are quick to judge small faults of others. If you have asked for the forgiveness of your sins and experienced God's love, then you will be able to forgive your brother's faults and fix their wrongs with gentleness. Jesus also tells us not to give what is holy and important to dogs and pigs. He is teaching us that what's most important to us, the gospel of the kingdom, cannot exist together with the ones that will walk all over them. After teaching us all of this, Jesus says, Ask, seek, and knock. These words should be familiar to you. Let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask him. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Verse 7 is a teaching of Jesus that is often read and used today. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. But if you concentrate only on this verse, it is easy to lose the meaning of what Jesus is teaching us as a whole and interpret the verse wrongly. Verse 7 is often explained to mean, if you pray hard enough, you will receive what you need. We tend to refer back to this verse when we are searching or needing an answer for something we feel we need. It's evident from our earlier studies that to ask, seek, and knock does not mean to pray as hard as you can until you receive what you're seeking. Jesus uses the words, your heavenly Father, while teaching us his Sermon on the Mount. When he tells us to be the salt and light of the world, Jesus tells us to glorify our heavenly Father, 
not ourselves. When Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, we are not to imitate someone that is better than us in this world, but rather our Heavenly Father. In addition, when Jesus teaches us not to ask for salvation, pray, or fast to be noticed by others, He tells us to do all these things to be noticed only by our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father forgave us for our faults and sins, and that is why we forgive others. The reason we should not worry is that our Heavenly Father is watching over us. To live our lives by following our Heavenly Father and according to what Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount, we need God to lead and help us. Are we really living our lives following God if we do not even seek Him or ask Him for help? That is why we must boldly ask, seek, and knock. This is because all can be given only by our Heavenly Father. Just like there is no father who will give his son a stone when asked for bread, or a snake when asking for a fish, God gives us good things when we ask. Jesus says in verse 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? When Jesus uses the words, how much more, he is explaining to us that even though we are evil, we give our children good gifts. Jesus is trying to show us how much more God in heaven, who is good, is willing to give to us. In the earlier chapter, Jesus tells us not to worry by teaching us that God feeds the birds of the air and makes the lilies of the field grow. Jesus uses the words much more again when he says, Will he not much more clothe you to explain how important and precious we are to God? This shows how our God is our Heavenly Father, God is who watches over us, and it is our Heavenly Father who gives us the strength and wisdom when we are trying to live according to God. There is a similar verse in Luke chapter 11 as well. It says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In Matthew it says good things, and in Luke it says the Holy Spirit. If we are living according to God's words and following Him, then what is the most important and good thing we need in our lives? There is nothing that we need more in our lives than the Holy Spirit to lead us. Jesus tells us in verse 12, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Have we not heard the words law and prophets before? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus used the words law and the prophets to mean the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, when one of the Pharisees asked Jesus which of the commandments is the most important, Jesus told him that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself are the two commandments that the law and the prophet depend on. To love God and your neighbors is at the heart and soul of the commandments. In Romans chapter 13, verse 10, it says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, 
Love is the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus says law and the prophets in verse 12, he is teaching us the importance of our love to God and to our neighbors. Let's think about Jesus' words. Therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. The same way you want them to treat you means the way you want other people to treat you. Jesus is telling us to treat others just the way you want to be treated. He is telling us to treat and love others as we would treat and love ourselves. God teaches us to love God with all of our heart, soul, minds, and our lives. When we ask God to help us with what we need to live our lives, loving Him and according to His words, He will provide all we need. When we receive all the good things from God, we should treat our neighbors just the way God treats us. We must love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. This is the fulfillment of the commandments in how Jesus treated and loved us. I pray that we all live our lives asking, seeking, and knocking, just like Jesus taught us. I want to read to you 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, as we end today's lesson. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Amen. Next time we will be studying Jesus' words, Enter Through the Narrow Gate. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ freed us from our sins. But why is it that we still sin in our lives? As I thought about this, I realized that my understanding of my freedom from sin was all wrong. I understood it as when I am free from sin, then I would no longer have the urge to sin and that there would no longer be any sin in my life. But as I read Romans chapter 6 closely, I began to see that I was mistaken. Romans chapter 6 verses 11 to 16 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? That's right. It is not that we become a person that will never sin again, but that we will not give into the lust of the flesh and will begin not to give ourselves to sin. Our flesh contains the elasticity of our sins, and that is why it wants us to go back to our original sinful life. That is why we must stop giving our lives over to sin and train to live our lives being slaves to righteousness. Just like I have continued to do my stretching exercises over a long period of time to fix my shoulder, we must steadily train ourselves to be slaves to righteousness because sin has been in our lives for a very long time. If we truly want to become free from sin and train to do so, then we can win the battle because sin can no longer rule over our lives. Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins and also saved us from death. That is why, through the power of Jesus, we are freed from both sin and death. I hope that we all live our lives free from our sins and live as slaves to righteousness. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. Your blood speaks a better word Than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth Speaks righteousness for me And stands in my defense Jesus, it's your blood It's your blood Your blood speaks a better word all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth Speaks righteousness for me It stands in my defense Jesus, it's your blood mm. What can wash away our sins? What can Oh
Your cross testifies in grace Tells of the Father's heart To make a way for us Holy we are prone 